Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday, August 30th, 2022 episode of The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording, label, recording artist, or the estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. Today's episode marks an important milestone for me. Today's episode is the 100th episode I have produced since October of 2020. So cue the trumpets, cue the fireworks, I'm celebrating. My guest today is jazz trombonist, vocalist, and educator Haley Brunell. At the age of 12, Brunell began performing throughout New England with her father, Dave Brunell. Now at 26, she has performed at prestigious venues around the world, having played with artists such as Sherry Markle and the Diva Jazz Orchestra, the Smithsonian Jazz Masterworks Orchestra, Ingrid Jensen, Onnit Cohen, Tony Glaussi, and Pell. As part of the Temple University Jazz Band, led by Terrell Stafford, she has played and recorded alongside many of today's top jazz artists, including Ken Poplowski, Jimmy Heath, Anne Hampton Calloway, John Faddis, Luis Bonilla, Wycliffe Gordon, Renee Marie, and Dick Oates. In addition, she shared the stage with Maurice Hines and the Diva Jazz Orchestra as part of the national tour of the Hines off-Broadway production, Tappan Through Life. Brunel was a finalist in the 2021 Sarah Vaughan International Jazz Vocal Competition. Although she is a young artist, Brunel has already performed at acclaimed venues such as Dizzy's Club Coca-Cola, the Exponential Music Festival, the Lake George Jazz Festival, World Cafe Live, the Kennedy Center, the Kimmel Center, the Washington Women in Jazz Festival in Washington, D.C., Alice Tully Hall at Lincoln Center, and the North Sea Jazz Festival in Rotterdam. Her debut album, I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles, peaked at number 13 on Amazon's Jazz New Release Chart and number 44 on the website's Jazz Best Seller Chart. 
Grinnell's music is rooted firmly in the original intentions of 1920s through 1940s jazz, arranged such that the energy is preserved, but new life is undoubtedly breathed into them. Acclaimed trumpeter Terrell Stafford praises Brunel for honoring the history of this music and sounding so pure and soulful that I can't stop listening. As an educator, Brunel has worked in a variety of settings spanning early childhood, elementary general, secondary instrumental and vocal, private lessons, master classes, as well as collegiate level education courses. She is currently on faculty at the University of the Arts, the Kimmel Center, and works as a guest clinician to bring jazz education to classrooms throughout the city. She was also a featured clinician in the 2020 National Jazz Conference with her workshop, A Melodic Approach to Scat Singing. Brunel is an outside in music and BAC musical instruments artist. It is my pleasure to welcome Haley Brunel to my podcast. Hello, Haley. Hi, nice to be here. Well, it's great to have you uh, here as well, and it's wonderful to talk with you and have you as a guest on my podcast. Uh, you know, I like to ask this of jazz musicians uh, because I'm a jazz musician myself, and and. Uh, and I always am interested in what other musicians have uh, as their response. But jazz comes in a lot of different flavors and different styles. And there's older styles that are still coexisting along with newer styles. And it seems like there's newer things that come along. But I think there's also a common thread that runs through all jazz music and what makes jazz distinct from other styles of music. So my question for you, what is that common thread? Um, I'm sure this is not gonna be a new answer that you've received, but um, the idea of improvisation, especially improv improvising uh, both within a set form and independently of a set form. I mean, different types of jazz, you have the head solo, 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 head, etc. cetera, um, different uh, constructs of chord changes. Uh, but then also the fact that jazz can blend with other genres and still not lose that title of jazz has always really intrigued me. Um, people have asked me, at what point does jazz stop being jazz? And I don't think we've really figured it out yet as musicians. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's a good, I think that's a good answer. You know, when does jazz stop being jazz? And uh, I can't think of an answer to that's that That's why myself. we came up with the, the title fusion. <laughs> I think so, or why yeah. we've had to come up with so many of the you know, the subvariants that seem to uh, uh, kind of uh, dominate, you know, for a time. But, uh, we, you know, we, we keep trying to find ways to be creative. I, I used to, what I would tell my students is that jazz is like a sponge. It soaks up everything around it. And then, and then when you squeeze it, something new and different comes out. Oh, I and, like that. Uh, I never heard that uh, before. Yeah, well, I was something I just thought of on my feet one day, and uh, in the context of a lecture I was doing, and and uh, you know, so and a student asked me a question, and that's how I addressed it because I think that's what we we do see as we look back through the, you know, the history of jazz, you know, of of taking pop tunes of the day, 
or of yesterday and making something new of them. And uh, I think that's uh, uh, an excellent uh, way that you you mentioned it too. We haven't figured out yet what isn't jazz. Some people uh, think they have. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. And there are people that are biased in their opinions. I mean, mm -hmm. there's some people that believe only the only true jazz is that that was played before 1930. And those that say that, uh, you know, jazz that uh, doesn't swing is not jazz, or if it doesn't have improvisation all, you know, constantly, it's not jazz. But it's, uh, I think, a matter of degree rather than a, a real black or white kind of distinction. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing I'm very curious to know about you, because you're both an instrumentalist and a vocalist, uh, the great Clark Terry once said to me, and there were a few other people in the audience as well, but I know he was talking just to me. Uh, with jazz, first you imitate, then you assimilate, and then you innovate. So, first of all, who were your models as a trombonist? Um, so it's funny. I feel like my some of my models I didn't know who they were until I started, like went to jazz school because I listened to a lot of older big band growing up. Um, so Frank Rosalino ended up being someone that really mattered to me. Uh, I mean, his like lead sound and his like brash tone was something I, I, I was drawn to. Obviously, the great J.J. Johnson. Um, and then more recently, like when I was uh, in college, I found out about Melba Liston. You can mm -hmm. tell I, I graduate or I gravitate toward uh, some older <laughs> jazz influences. But uh, yeah, Melba Liston um, had a great sound and great arrangements. But uh, and she, she was one of the people that put together the all trombone ensembles, too. Um, even like, you know, before like JJ and Kai were doing it. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, those, those are the big three for me, I think, if mm -hmm. I had to had to pick. Well, I think those are, yeah, those are certainly good people to to learn from. I had the opportunity to uh, see Frank Rossellino live one time. I was out at a jazz festival out on the uh, Costa Mesa, California, and he was playing. It was really, really wow. uh, wonderful. His uh, sound and uh, and his ideas when he improvised, and of course, uh, uh, J.J. Johnson and I played a gig. A gig. <laughs> Kai Winding was a yeah. was a guest soloist and clinician when I was in college one time, so it was kind of fun to hear him as well. And a lot yeah. of a lot of great people. Well, and it's uh, so funny. An album I grew up listening to is a you know the Four Freshmen. Like oh the, yeah, yes, I grew up the Four Freshmen and Five Trombones. Yes, which I found out later on the top and bottom were Frank Rosalino and George Roberts. So, right. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. Years later, finding out. Oh, I, I guess I I do like them in a lot of different situations. I just didn't know it was them. You know, I <laughs> I discovered that album completely by happenstance, uh, and it was uh, I want to say the date was about fifty six when that was done, but it was the four right. freshmen and the Kenton trombones, like mm -hmm. the, tri the Stan Kenton trombone section. Yeah, that was, that's a great album. Yep. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, well then what about uh, as a vocalist? Uh, I started out, uh, well, it's interesting because uh, the first uh, jazz vocalist I listened to as a kid was Wayne Newton. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The, yeah. King of Las Vegas. So uh, my, you know, my, my dad listened to a lot of like, Rat Pack, Sinatra, Dean Martin, and then okay. Wayne Newton made his way there. Um, <laughs> and uh, I learned all these standards in sort of specific, like that kind of way. Um, and mm -hmm. then as I got a little older, um, Ella Fitzgerald was the first person mm -hmm. I heard and thought like, oh, I didn't realize these songs could be sung this way. <laughs> 
Um, so sure. Ella was was my first big influence and revelation. Um, then Annie Ross, I listened, listened to mm-hmm. a lot of uh, Lambert Hendrickson Ross growing mm-hmm. up. Um, and then uh, when I started getting into college um, is when I got really into Betty Carter and uh, Sarah Vaughn. Because mm-hmm. I feel like Betty Carter is someone that is is good to get into after you already have the context of like you know what Ella was doing and everyone else. Um, more recently, I'm I'm really into uh, Cecile McLaurin Salvant. Um, oh yeah, sure. She's great. I saw her um, at the North Sea Jazz Festival a few years back. She's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Jasmia Horn. Um, oh sure, sure. Who, I guess in the vein of you know Sarah Vaughn, Betty Carter. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. So those would be. Was that five? I think that was five. Uh, that might have been five. I wasn't <laughs> take, keep, I wasn't keeping count, but there are a lot of marvelous uh, jazz singers out there today. A mom, yeah. I mean, modern jazz singers, and certainly we have that that wonderful uh, uh, well uh, to draw upon of those uh, singers that you mentioned in the past. I happen to just think uh, uh, that maybe I'm shooting off topic of another mm-hmm. trombone player uh, singer. Can I guess, Who? or is it? <laughs> yeah, go ahead if you want. Uh, is it? Are they modern? No. Ooh, they're not modern. Okay, then I might not get it as quickly. Okay, you can you can go, and I'm I'm wondering if I'm okay. Gonna... Jack Teagarden. Oh yes, of course. I love. I'm transcribing one of his uh, one of his tunes because I love the way he delivers it. Is uh, "Take Me Where They Play the Blues." Oh, I don't know that. that oh, yeah, uh, yeah. That yeah. Look it up on yeah. iTunes or Spotify or wherever you go. Or it's yeah. probably on YouTube. It's a I wonderful only fa- song. I only found out he sang like recently. I, I did not know because I, I loved Because like, I mean, I grew up um, and listening to a lot of older stuff. And I used to play like Louis Armstrong trad stuff. And Jack yeah. Teagarden was a nice transition uh, there for me, like playing wise. But I had no idea he sang. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then I think the person that told me I went to a jam session in uh, Connecticut or something. I'm from Massachusetts originally. Okay. Um, so at some point when I was in college, and a uh, Steve Davis was there because um, sure. he. I, I'm not sure if he's still at heart. I know he was teaching there, but uh, he heard me play. I didn't know who he was at the time, so I didn't get a chance to be nervous. Um, but I, I went in and I, I played Basin Street Blues. Mm-hmm. He came up and he said like, "Oh, it sounds like Jack Teagarden," which. I took is the biggest compliment. And I think he, he yeah. was the one that told me like, cause he saw me sing too. He's like, you know, he sang too. I was like, I had no idea. Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, now you've heard it from two sources. Yeah, I know. So it's now confirmed. You've, got a, <laughs> you've got a listening assignment to yeah. do after the interview, but uh, <laughs> yeah, he, uh, I think most of his singing stuff was probably in the forties. Yeah. But uh, you know, he's, uh, he's one of those early jazz people that, you know, he was sort of the as important for the trombone as Louis Armstrong was for oh, the trumpet, yeah. that kind of era. Except he wasn't from New Orleans. He was from Vernon, Texas. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, but uh, kind of a kind of a great guy to check out. Um, well, you know, you, uh, uh, of course, work in a professional setting. You're also an educator. Do you have any tips for any young aspiring musicians who might be listening who would like to pursue a professional career as a musician? Definitely. Um, the biggest thing I've learned is that regardless of what genre of music you're you're going to play in, um, it's important to get out into the community uh, to meet people and play with people. Um, that's something I wish I had done more of when I was in high school um, or even middle school. I, I lived right next to a Springfield, Massachusetts. Okay. which uh, there's, there's, a, there's a music scene there. Um, there's great players. I took lessons from great people. 
But I wish I had started, you know, well, begging my parents to take me out, uh, which I'm sure they would have more if I had asked, um, to either play with or just meet people that are professional musicians, get a glimpse of what their lives look like, see if you want that ultimately. Mm -hmm. um, but play with as many people as you can, even when you're getting into college. Like for me, that was a huge decision of why I went to Temple University in Philadelphia mm -hmm. was mm -hmm. I knew I would be in a city and in a place with a large jazz community and music community, even outside of the school I was at. So anything you can do to just meet as many musicians and play with as many musicians as possible mm -hmm. and not put yourself in that like box of like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to learn all this fifties and sixties jazz stuff. Cause that's what I do. And I'm going to play bebop and I'm going to go to this school and, you know, mm -hmm. meet yeah. a bunch of musicians and play different stuff. That's, that's my biggest thing. Well, you know, I think you're right. I, uh, uh, found that you really do learn a lot just from by just by playing i mean it's sort of like and i when i say playing i don't mean practicing i mean playing yeah because when you're in a when you're in a performance situation uh you've got a little di bit different dynamic in terms of uh, pressure you know because you're playing in for the public and uh, you deal with mistakes a whole lot differently than you do when you're in the practice room yeah. and that's often a valuable uh uh teaching tool, learning, learning experience. I think you're absolutely right to getting out and playing a lot of different people. And I, I really, I've learned a lot too. Recently, uh, I've interviewed a number of uh, musicians who, you know, had kind of had their start in Philadelphia and uh, learning more about Temple as an yeah. institution, primarily because of a, uh, some friends of my wife and mine, their daughter went to Temple. Mm -hmm. And she just finished her master's degree there, uh, I think this spring. But anyway, uh, and she'd always talk about, you know, what a great music scene and the, you know, the whole, the whole bit. So it's, it's great. I, and I think just being in that environment, being around a lot of different musicians is important too. I, you, you, I think we tend to feed off of each other. Totally. And the, the thing too, that I, I, I wish I had been told when I was younger is, you know, everyone, when we, when you first start playing with other people, whether it's in college or, you know, out in a music scene, it, it's always, you're always going to be nervous the first time you, when you're, you're getting into that. And there will never be a point where you say, I've practiced in a practice room enough. Now I'm ready and I won't be nervous. So it's just put yourself out there as soon as possible, yeah. get over that initial nerves, and then you'll start improving. But that yeah. it's regardless of how good you get in the practice room, you're always going to be nervous. Exactly. And, and yeah. you don't want to just be a practice room musician. No. And I think that's what happens sometimes to a, to a lot of us, you know, because that's where we spend a lot of our time. Is, yeah, and, uh... and I think people are so afraid of sounding bad, but uh, I think the best advice I ever got was uh, go out and like put yourself out there because people don't really care that much and probably won't remember you anyway. <laughs> yeah. So if, you, if yeah. you sound good, people might remember. If you don't sound good, you, you have next uh, time. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, no one's recording this. So, I mean, no. you know, if we can just uh, go on. Yeah, that's what I tell. It's like this summer, I, I've got back uh, playing regularly again uh, this summer, of course, after the pandemic. And where we're playing, I have four different groups that I, I front and I'm rotating them. Uh, but we're playing in a uh, beer garden at a German restaurant in, uh, in one of the Milwaukee suburbs, uh, West Allis, Wisconsin. And it's a beautiful setting. It's outdoor and, you know, and uh, 
we had one night where the weather was kind of contrary, but uh, we've, we've generally, but of course, people aren't there really to listen to you. A few people are, especially the uh, spouses and significant others of the people in the band, uh, and they're going to be forgiving. But you're right. I mean, when you play something good, people, they hoot, holler, and they clap, and they think, oh, that's great. And if you make a mistake, usually they don't notice, or at least they're kind enough not to mention it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, I want to switch to your work specifically. I, uh, in preparation for interviews, I, I tend to dive in uh, and listen a lot to uh, recordings that my guests have done. And I have to tell you that I love, I really enjoy your approach uh, and the arrangements that uh, you have done on the standards that you have recorded. And that, a lot of your work is standards. And that's, the, you know, and of course, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's, that's right. You know, and I have to tell you, I love standards as well. I love singing and playing. And my favorite is uh, I've Never Been in Love Before from Guys oh, and Dolls. Yeah, and I love tune. that song. That's one of my and, jam session calls. I love that tune. Yeah, oh, good. Yeah. Well, we have something in common. Then. <laughs> no, I just love it. And I especially, I think I got hooked on it because of Chet Baker's uh, version. And uh, so I think uh, I tell people when I perform it in public, I say, okay, this is going to be uh, my best Chet Baker Im imitation. <laughs> and I, it won't be anything like Chet Baker, but I'm going to try because I can't sing nor play like him, but I love the song. I love the lyric. I, you know, I love the changes to play over, you know, when I play the solo, uh, when I solo on trumpet and so forth. But what draws you to a particular standard? Is it the melody, the lyrics, the harmony, or is it something else? It totally depends on the standard. Um, generally speaking, it, it helps when I, I personally connect to the lyrics remember when I was in a, in college, um, you know, because when you're in school, everyone has this list of really hip, cool tunes that, you know, are important to learn. But I remember going into my lesson once and uh, I, I didn't take voice lessons, really, but it was like a improvisation lessons with one of my teachers. And uh, I said I wanted to sing Lush Life. Oh, yeah. And uh, he, he went to me and said, all right let me know <laughs> what in your life have you experienced <laughs> that um, lets you connect to Lush Life. <laughs> and I, you know, I laughed at first, but then I really thought about it. I was like, oh man, he's right. No, I, I don't really, I, I have no perspective on how to connect with these. So, you know, lyrics matter. Um, it won't prohibit me from doing a song because, you know, you can't experience everything that's been sung about in every sad jazz standard. But if I don't connect with it, I'm probably not going to do it because I don't have any truthful way to, you know, express it. Um, huh? I mean, coming from an instrumental background, there are plenty of tunes that I learned instrumentally and then picked up what the lyrics were afterwards. So I guess they would say it's more on the melody harmony side. Um, uh -huh. I really, really enjoy uh, singing like, you know, bird heads and bebop tunes because mm -hmm. I find it really fun and honestly easier than putting them on trombone so uh you know sometimes lyrics don't really matter to me and it's just really fun to sing eternal triangle um uh -huh. <laughs> yeah a lot of my songs that i decide to play especially the ones i decide to record and uh, arrange with my own band though it's so context dependent because it's like oh my dad used to play orange colored sky with my gram sitting at a piano and i remembered that tune or um i'm trying to think uh easy to love it was like oh well i played in the pit for uh anything goes once and i always loved that tune but it's you know it's just 
things I picked up here and there. Some of them are really significant to me. Some of them aren't. I just, they were stuck in my head for a long time. So I decided mm -hmm. to arrange and record them. But yeah, a lot of different ways I find songs. And especially, yeah, uh, like recording, I recorded a Beatles song because <laughs> yeah. I just like, I like the Beatles and decided, you know, this would be fun to do with my bass player who also loves the Beatles. So uh -huh. depends uh -huh. on the tune. So I think that what you're you're saying is that uh, when you uh, when you pick a standard, you have a certain level of personal integrity that you have to have with that song. In other words, being able to relate to it, you're not just mimicking, you're not just uh, uh, coming out of you know. Uh, uh, well, I'll do this because a lot of people like it. Uh, well, I mean that's not a bad reason either. But what I'm saying is, is is there's a certain in, uh, personal musical integrity that's involved in choosing those standards. Totally, and I guess that also connects too with um, even just instrumentally, there are tunes that I know I could learn to play, and they're the hip thing that people call on jams, or really hard, mm. or you know some hard Wayne shorter tune. It yeah. can be this moment of like, oh, I could learn that and I could play it, but I don't feel like what I'm putting into that song is like really doing anything worthwhile or interesting. So maybe I'll play it at a jam, but I'm not going to play it on my gig or record it because it's, you know, not what I do best. And I'm just sure. going to let leave that to other people. And that's fine, sure. too. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think there's a, there's a lot of lot of, uh, you know, it, it's sort of like uh, you want to be uh, adhering to the truth. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think that's uh, that says a lot. That's great. Uh, well, then, when you prepare a standard, because your arrangements might very well certainly deviate from any original version of the song, what do you focus on to rearrange or bring the song across in a manner that will then make it sound fresh and original? Uh, I go from a few different perspectives. Um, my biggest thing is I try to not overthink it. If I'm like, this actually happened yesterday. I was sitting with a tune thinking, oh, I really want to do this tune and come up with an arrangement. I sat by the piano for like an hour, didn't come up with anything I liked. So I put it away and I'll, maybe I'll come back to it later, but mm -hmm. I'm all about not forcing myself to like mm -hmm. morph a tune into something for the sake of it being different. Um, for me, it's all like, I'll take what I know. Oh, Orange Colored Sky, that arrangement I did. That was me thinking, oh, you know, I really want to write like a big band style shout section over this mm -hmm. going from that point. But it was an idea I already had in my head. It wasn't really like I wrote that shout really most of my arrangements. I write really quickly because I'm sort of of the mindset of like when I have an idea worth writing it for me, at least it fortunately or unfortunately, it kind of fleshes itself out pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Or I mean, sometimes I do things like uh very groove dependent like if i'm really forcing myself to like okay i want just to do something different and get myself out of doing this tune the same way everyone else has just picking a different groove i like and and playing the song over it with my band or in a duo mm -hmm. setting and see waiting till something feels good and then basing an arrangement off that but i'm a i'm in the don't overthink it camp <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but i think you know i i love to play around with stuff you know, oh, yeah. my wife and I, we performed together as a uh, uh, trumpet and, and uh, piano duo. We oh, call cool. it Brass and Ivory. And I love that. Uh, yeah, well, I kind of stole it from Doc Severinsen and, and Henry Mancini and their ah. album Brass <laughs> on Ivory. 
<laughs> and I said, well, we'll just change our name to Brass and Ivory. And that's that's the how we uh, we go out. <laughs> but we uh, we do a couple of Beatle tunes that uh, oh, cool. I really love how they came together. We took eight days a week and we play it as a bossa nova. Oh, yeah. Now chew on that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then the other one that we had fun with was uh, Lady Madonna. Mm-hmm. And it came out because she was, we were playing through it, you know, like the re- good old regular tempo, like the Beatles did it. And then there was a passage that she had, she said, can we slow this down? I need to work on this passage a little bit. And we slowed it down. And all of a sudden the light bulb went on and I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. We need to do this whole tune down and dirty instead yeah. of up tempo so it's more of a and then i said and i told her i, I was saying and when you play some of those chords in your right hand kind of like do a tremolo kind of thing so it kind of sounds like a uh, like dr john old, playing lady madonna old house <laughs> oh, yeah, piano yeah. version right bluesy down yeah. and dirty you know kind of thing we love doing it and uh we so far i've only played it we did we do these little concerts in the summer we play off the back deck of our condo and uh which looks over kind of a, a nature path and a and a open grassy area so our neighbors come over and they set up their lawn chairs and we play for them for a couple hours and nice. it's fun for us and they, they they like it but it is fun i think to take you know tunes and mess around with them uh, for lack of a better term yeah. and, you know whether it's change tempo or change meter or or uh uh i mean like uh you should you should think of uh like stevie wonders my sharia more as a mm-hmm. jazz waltz yeah uh, you know kind of wrap yeah. your head around that a little actually bit. just I, I just did that at a jam the other week that i was in the yeah. house band on yeah not as a waltz though yeah um, but it it, it, yeah. it it's kind of cool as kind of like a jazz yeah. waltz it works anyway it's we have something. fun doing that yeah. And something else I like doing, I tell my, I, I teach at University of the Arts here in Philadelphia and something right. I, I like telling my students to do, especially in the ensemble I direct. Um, if you're having a hard time thinking of an arrangement on a tune, record yourself blowing over the tune and then listen back and hear if you have any ideas you like. Like I have um, an arrangement of Easy to Love and it starts out this, it starts out with this lick and it's, I had no idea how to arrangement. It was two days before the session date um and i did, didn't have an intro yet for this tune so i recorded myself yeah. blowing over it and then settled on that and wrote it down mm-hmm. yeah yeah well i mean it's it's funny how your your creative juices will kind of uh you know flow when you subject uh subject yourself to kind of some uh, uh creative thinking ideas i used to do a class at the university the last Last few years that I taught before I retired from full-time teaching, I taught a class called uh, Creative Thinking, and no, excuse me, Innovation and Creative Problem Solving. And, uh, and one of the books I used was a book called Creative Thinkering, and they would have these various exercises. So one of the exercises I would do is I would have, this is a non-music class, by the way, no musicians. So I would have like a box full of different things, you know, a pencil, a, 
an eraser, a a rubber band, uh, whatever, all different kinds of objects. And I would tell the students, I would say, okay, now you're not to look, but you're to reach your hand in and pick two different things. Now invent something new using those two things. Oh, wow. You know, just come up with something and tell me what its use is and what, you know. I said, because in a lot of ways, that's how the iPhone came together. You know, they, they took cell phone, they took computer and put it together and voila, yeah. you know, now we have our brains in our pocket. <laughs> um, and I think that, that like, w- music is very much in a, a similar way, you know, like you were saying, uh, you know, play, listen to what you play over a tune and you'll hear in your improvisation some great melodic ideas that then you can go back and draw on. So I think uh, that's, uh, uh, you know, really a great way to think about things. And students that are listening will appreciate that input, I'm sure. Kind of moving on, and we've already kind of let the cat out of the bag a little bit talking about the Beatles, but in <laughs> 2022, you recorded All Follow the Sun, uh, originally recorded by the Beatles. And the Beatles were pretty great songwriters. Not bad. You're not you bad. No, not bad at all. <laughs> uh, and uh, I don't know if you've seen the documentary that's out there about their, their get, last the get session. Back or... yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I haven't yeah. watched the whole thing yet. I feel like yeah. I never I never have the attention span for to, to, sit down, yeah. to sit down and watch it. But what I've seen is amazing. Interesting to me, though, however, is how they worked. You know, just yeah. sitting there. And one of them would come up with an idea of a song and somebody would say, well, maybe we add this. And then, and then Ringo would say, okay, I'll add this drum beat to it. And voila, you know, and uh, I thought it was really interesting. Well, anyway, but I was going to, the question I have for you, would you say that the Beatles catalog is a ripe source of new standards? I mean, I'd say so. It's I, I'm I'm really biased though because I am a, a a huge Beatles fan. That's actually when I recorded "I'll Follow the Sun." That was with my bass player Joe Plowman, who's on all my uh, all my records. He is also a huge Beatles fan. Like he has like a one of the you know Hofner basses and everything. And um, but uh, we were doing a live stream, and we happened to be doing it with a really nice sound setup. And then after the live stream, we listened back, and we're like, "Oh wow, that." That version of All Fall of the Sun was was really good. Um, and our sound was was good enough that I was able to send it to my engineer team that I usually use, and they mixed and mastered it. Um, but that was literally from Joe and I just looking at different Beatles songs we liked and saying, oh, what would work well as a vocal and bass duo? Really impromptu. Huh. Um, yeah, and it's actually funny. I guess that song is just obscure enough um, that people think I wrote it, <laughs> which is the biggest compliment. Um, but I guess that album came out right before Help, so people forget about it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, the Beatles had so many great tunes that you could put in different contexts. Um, yeah, I mean, I could name a million of them right now, but sure. especially especially a bunch of the ballads. Like, you listen to, like, Here, There, and Everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, that's just a beautiful, relatively harmonically complex ballad. Like, you could play that as an instrumental in a second. No one would question it. Sure, sure. Well, I think that uh, I, I remember a number of years ago. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to say it was probably in the mid to late 80s or 90s. I don't know. When you get to be my age, one decade <laughs> kind of flows into the other. Herbie Hancock released an album entitled The New Standards. Oh, okay. And, I I, and it had a number of different, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
more more contemporary pop songs that he had arranged, you know, kind of in a jazz context. So, you know, looking at today's landscape, uh, are there other pop singers or songwriters that you would uh, consider having written songs that also might qualify as standards in an updated great, and I'm not going to call it American, I'm going to call <laughs> it a great international songbook right. because certainly the Beatles were not American, they're English and Phil Collins is English and oh wait a minute I should show, gave gave one away there but you know <laughs> there are a lot of non-Americans that are writing a lot of great music today uh, are there other pop singer songwriters that you uh, could see fitting in that mold definitely um I tend to not think of newer pop singers not because I don't like them but because it's harder to get the rights for their for their music um, right. <laughs> but uh yeah, I uh, anything could be a standard if you bastardize it. Can I say bastardize? Maybe yeah, not. you can say that. Okay, anything can be a standard if you bastardize it enough, right? Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's crazy to me thinking about like the people I listen to. Uh, I recorded a Donald Fagan tune on my album that hasn't been released yet, um, like from Steely Dan, and it's not because I thought to myself, oh, you know what? I think Donald Fagan fits really well into the jazz idiom. It's like. No, I like this song. Let's <laughs> we'll figure mm -hmm. out how to make this work. Same I record, you know, Harry Nilsson is mm -hmm. another one where I feel like a bunch of his songs like, yeah, you can put them into the jazz standards catalog, but it's more to me like if I like a song enough, uh or I I have an origin of How Deep Is Your Love by the Bee Gees. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of those like you could really take any artist you like. I would I would listen to some Dua Lipa jazz standards. Her songs are awesome. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But as long as you connect with it, then and you're a jazz musician, you can make it work in your idi idiom. We talked about how fluid jazz is. Sure. But yeah. Well, and I, I you know, and I, and I, I, I know I get in this discussion. I said, you know, back years and years ago, I mean, that jazz musicians sang, you know, songs yeah. that were pop songs. And oh yeah, uh, there's the whole. There's a bunch of. There's Sarah Vaughn sings the Beatles. There's a Johnny Hartman pop yeah. record. There's so many. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a there's a ripe for picking mm -hmm. a lot of great music out there. Um, well, let's kind of move on to a different uh, topic. And that is your your writing. Uh, you know, when I used to explain to my students, the difference between composing and arranging, I would explain that arranging is an equally creative activity as it takes someone else's raw material the composition and makes it into something sounding new and different. And you write great arrangements and you did mention that you do write originals as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well then when you write an original, do you typically start with a melodic idea, a rhythmic idea, a particular set of chord changes, or do you start with lyrics or a particular mood? Um, I've done it all sorts of ways. Um, the best, uh, the best tunes I've written come from a combination of melodic and lyric ideas, usually kind of as one. Um, I've done it before where I, you know, come up with a progression or I vamp on something and I'll come up with ideas, but I usually those aren't the tunes I end up connecting with the most. Um, I have a couple originals on my uh, upcoming record that I, I came up with a, a really small fragment. One of them was kind of what ended up being the hook of the song, um, but one of them was literally just the first line. And I came up with, you know, um, one of my, here, this will be a, a sneak preview of a, of a song that I haven't released yet. But um, 
I, I came up with the, the, just the small idea. I'm starting to think I might be evil. And I was like, cool. That sounds like it's probably a blues. And I just kind of figured <laughs> out around there and mm-hmm. took my notebook. I, I'm a big fan of handwriting things before oh, cool. I type them in. Um, but yeah, I, I took my notebook and thought, all right, if I'm writing a song uh, about someone that thinks that they, they might be evil, uh, what else is that person doing in life? Or what are they thinking? And I just write like stream of consciousness, nothing rhymes, just like a bunch of different lyrics. And then maybe I'll go to the piano and like, sing like I'm, I'm thinking oh this sounds bluesy i'm just gonna play a blues and sing some of these sentences i've written out and <laughs> see if anything makes sense and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like you know a week later of me going back and forth from it I, i've written a song so that's wow. usually how it works for me that's something so you, you kind of just start with some sort of catchphrase and a melody that goes with it and uh and then build on that i think that's that's pretty cool i i've talked to numerous singer songwriters and everybody has kind of different approaches um there was one uh, i've uh uh interviewed uh uh aubrey logan oh who's yeah, that's also who a I, was, I was a vocalist I was did you think ask, that's who i was talking when about? you were talking about before yeah i was like because i know aubrey i was like oh i wonder who's talking about aubrey <laughs> well, i interviewed aubrey all oh, last year maybe oh, it's cool. been longer ago than that and and i asked her that similar question and she said that very often what she looks for for inspirations are uh, interesting quotes or catchphrases. Mm. And uh, so I, I referred her to a uh, uh, collection by a Dr. Marty Groth, who, uh, who collects famous quotes and sayings and best oh, opening wow. lines of novels and just little things like that, that I'm intrigued by, you know, little yeah. tidbits. But I think that, that, uh, you know, something that comes to mind too, is that um, I was, I was interviewing another uh, jazz vocalist actually on Friday. Uh, I don't know. I'm getting a lot of jazz vocalists <laughs> together just by happenstance. Uh, Ashley Pizzotti. Uh, oh, yeah, she's York. awesome. Yeah. And I asked her about uh, uh, her songs. Uh, and I said, does wor- do words and therefore phrases, when you put words together, have some sort of inherent melody to them? Oh, that's an interesting question. And the, I think the answer for me is, they don't until I sing it with one melody and then that's the only melody they go with. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Then I have a hard time unhearing it usually. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I just I just think that it's that it's interesting to think about uh you know, I, like poetry for example. Yeah. Uh or just the spoken word. I'm always just sucked in by great wordsmiths whether they're novelists or or poets i mean that's why i love jack kerouac and and uh, but uh uh and thinking about a book i read called how to read a poem that insisted that poetry must be read aloud because you have to hear the words and you have to feel the words in your mouth there has to be there's a mouth feel to words and i and i really thought I've been, I still think very deeply about that. And I try to think in terms of how that applies to singing and, uh, you know, and that idea of like what you just said, you know, uh, put when, once you put a melody and you know, it works, that's what sticks and you don't change. That's, that's kind of, it's very interesting. Um, 
Well, let's uh, kind of move on then. Then you also do something rather unique, I should tell you, in that you do keep a sketchbook, a written sketchbook, you said. You write with actual paper and pencil. Yeah, and I do two different things. I do um, for, for lyrics and that sort of um well, yeah, usually if I'm starting with lyrics and I've like been working on a song, it's all written in like a sketchbook or a man. I, I actually uh-huh. usually write on it in a manuscript paper book and I'll write the lyrics in. So then if I come up with note or phrase fragments, I can like kind of fill them in as I go along. Uh-huh. Um, I also am a big believer of a uh, of voice memos. Okay. Um, of, yeah, I'm a voice memo person too. So if I'm out and about, I don't have to have something with me. I can just, you know, record something. Then when I get home, I can write it down. But yeah, I, I handwrite everything first wow. um, before I, yeah. It depends. If I'm doing like, you know, a large ensemble arrangement. Also, I have a cat that's very determined to that's go, okay. go on the laptop. Th- this is very much an <laughs> animal-friendly show. Uh, my canine companion is, well, asleep on the floor over there. Oh, okay. But, but anyway, yeah, no. no, I'm okay with cats too. Beautiful, beautiful eyes in that cat. Oh, yeah. And actually, you can see I have pretty much a drawing of her on the wall behind me, too. Oh, sure, yeah, she's, sure. She's, she, does, she does not go unappreciated in this house. You know, I can't. <laughs> I, we're the same way here. I have a couple of acquaintance of mine, acquaintances of mine uh, that are artists, and they're both flute players, too. Mm-hmm. And uh, one do, works in uh, oil paints. And one year for National Puppy Day, she made the uh, offer. She said, she just put it out on Facebook. Anybody that would like to have me do a painting of their dog, their puppy, just send me your favorite photo and I'll, I'll do it. Aww. So we have one of those. And That's then awesome. the other uh, friend works in uh, colored pencil. And uh, we commissioned her to do a portrait of Carmel. That's our, our little Shih Tzu. Aww. And so we have those. So yeah. Yeah, they own us, don't they? Oh yeah, a hundred percent. I forgot what I was even saying, but let's see. Probably... We were talking about <laughs> sketchbooks and music, oh, weren't yeah. we? <laughs> I think so. Um, but yeah, no. I uh, unless I'm doing the only time that I'll I'll start with um, like Sibelius or notation software is if I'm like arranging something for large ensemble, or if I'm arranging something very quickly, <laughs> like okay. for a, a different group or for for my students. Sometimes to save time, I'll uh, go into Sibelius. But for my own tunes, I like to handwrite first. Well, that's 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 unique. I have you are one of the few singer songwriters I've talked to in the last couple of years that still put pencil to paper. Uh, and I think that's uh, that's interesting. It's not good. It's not bad. The others technology's not bad either, because it's always good to have that collection of different heads or vamps or other ideas that oh, you yeah. can then draw upon later. But uh, there's one thing that you're uh, in speaking about your writing for large ensemble that made me think of another question I want to ask sure. you. And again, since this isn't one I submitted to you ahead of time, if you <laughs> don't want to answer it, you don't have to, but you perform in both small group settings, and I'm talking as a vocalist, just, mm-hmm. uh, just as a vocalist right now, in both small group settings and also with big bands, I assume. Mm-hmm. Do you have to exercise some different kind of musical muscles when you go from one type of group to the other? And if so, what are they? A hundred percent. And I, I don't sing as much with big bands. Usually it's a big band that I am already playing trombone in. And then it's like, cool, now you're going to sing a couple. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, because generally that's how it works out um but yeah singing with big bands um you have to do a lot more with 
arrangement limitations, generally speaking. I mean, there are exceptions, um, but not many. Usually it's, you know, someone has written out exactly what the backgrounds are going to be behind you, exactly how much space you have. You don't have much room to back phrase or to, you know, do your own little phrasing decisions that you would in small groups. So big band, I actually find harder um, because there are fewer options and you have to work within that framework work so closely. Um, I like doing it and it's always fun, but small group is definitely where my heart is because I like being able to interact with a band that is then able to <laughs> interact with me more so than when it's as part of a big band arrangement. Okay. That makes well, sense. That makes total sense. I mean, I, 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 I know for what you speak because in a, in a big band setting, there has to be more that's preset. You don't have the same kind of freedom you do in a combo. And uh, yeah, solos have to be, I mean, occasionally, you know, you can open up a solo section, right. but, but, uh, uh, but usually there are a lot more constrictions and uh, I love them both. I mean, totally, I, you know, I, I, I love it all. I mean, it's like, you know, I tell, I would tell my students and I tell people today, I say, when you go into the ice cream store, why just have one or two flavors, <laughs> try them all. They're all yeah, good. And, and big band is definitely as a trombone player, big band is probably what has my heart in terms of a playing setting. I absolutely love playing in big bands. Uh -huh. Yeah. So. Well, that's great. That's great. Well, now the question, do you have a new album or a new single in the works? And what can you share uh, with us about any new recordings? Uh, yeah, I have um, a new album that I've just uh, gotten the masters to. Um, so that's uh, at my record label, Outside in Music. We're releasing it together in um, it's probably spring of 2023 at this point, I think March. Um, it's called Beautiful Tomorrow. It's an interesting collection of songs. I think I mentioned earlier, I have a, you know, a Donald Fagan song on there, a Harry Nilsson song, uh -huh. uh, a couple, a couple originals. Um, so it's, it, it's a lot more arranged and has a couple of like, um, you know, three horn, um, some more produced jazz on a couple tracks that I'm excited about that I really, really got to go in and make these tracks exactly what I wanted in these complex arrangements. Um, and then my next single, it won't be coming out until November. I have a, a Christmas single coming out, uh, another duo with my bass player, Joe Plowman. Uh -huh. um, but uh, that will be, uh, actually, this is the first time I've sang it out loud to anyone that's not putting the single out <laughs> for me. Um, but it will be, um, I'll be home for Christmas. Oh, I feel wonderful. like that one, it's hard to find a Christmas song that isn't overdone. Um, but, uh, you know, I feel like that one walks the line of it's a little overdone, but also it's a really good song. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, that'll be the next thing. No, I agree. I think that's uh that's a wonderful song and, and excited to hear about your new album and, and that, uh, you're working with outside in music. I I've had the pleasure of interviewing Alan, yeah. uh, for, for my podcast. And I have uh, been acquainted with, uh, Nick for for a while i've never met nick or talked to him personally but um uh we've corresponded via email and and i uh i personally feel like outside in music is just spot on with their their philosophy their you know their whole idea the way they want to promote artists and so i you know you know this already but i think you're in really great hands with those folks yeah and no i'm complaints. very 
very excited to hear uh, what you'll be coming out with. Well, okay, now I've got two real important questions to ask you. If I were to come to come to Philadelphia in the next few weeks, or magically, if I could get there by the, the weekend or, or in the next week, uh, where might I find you performing? Um, well, it depends. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when this podcast is, is going to be airing. Okay. Um, but uh, I have some things coming up. Well, this weekend, this upcoming weekend, I'm playing at a small jazz festival in Philadelphia um, called the Lancaster Ave Jazz Festival. Um, later in the summer, I'm playing uh, in August as part of the LBI uh, concert series um, for the LBI Foundation. Mm -hmm. um, in in September, I'm playing. Oh, I'm playing with the Grace Fox Big Band. She's awesome. She's also doing re uh, releasing with OIM. Um, playing with the yeah. McBird Land. That's going to be a good gig. And then, uh, oh, and I have something in September at the Nower Performing Arts Center um, out here in uh, Westchester, Pennsylvania. Oh, off the top of my head, I think those are the the going to be the really fun ones. But they're all oh, on my good. website um, too, and I post more dates all the time. Oh, good, good. That ought to be exciting to play Birdland, you know. And uh, yeah, you're doing yeah. some some really great. Okay, my second most important question is: Where should I go for the best cheesesteak? Um, I'm not the person to ask because I don't love cheesesteaks. They're oh, fine, darn. but um, I say skip the cheesesteak and go to John's Roast Pork. Oh. oh, can you hear me? I can. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, I say skip the cheesesteak and go to John's Roast Pork on Front and Snyder. They have cheesesteaks and they're great, but they're roast pork sandwiches. Real Primo. Good. Okay. Well, I've 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 seen the the battle of the cheesesteak, mm -hmm. Philadelphia cheesesteaks. Usually, when the Brewers, Milwaukee Brewers, play the Phillies, they'll always have something about cheesesteak in there, and they talk about Geno's and oh, what's Pat's the other and Gino. one? Yeah, Pat's and Geno's. Those Pat. those are that's where not to go. I think D'Alessandro's in uh, Roxborough would be the place if you're really into cheesesteaks. Okay, see, this yeah. is the important inside information <laughs> I need, and my listeners. Well, they yeah. they might need it, but it's for me mostly because I haven't been yeah. to Philadelphia since 1976. That was the last time I was in Philadelphia. Oh, wow. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. D'Alessandro's and John's Roast Pork, I'd say. Okay. I'm going to remember that. <laughs> well, Haley, is there anything else you'd like to add or tell my audience that I haven't asked you about? Um, feel free to, you know, reach out to me on my website, come out to shows and say hi and request any Beatles song you like, because I feel like we talked about the Beatles <laughs> a lot today. And sure I have to did. deliver on that. <laughs> Yeah. And well, and they have some great music. And Haley, just so you know, and also so that my listeners are reminded, I do have included in my show notes links to Haley's website, her Facebook page. I also put up a, a YouTube uh, video, a couple of links uh, so that you can become more familiar with Haley and her great work. And, uh, and I uh, encourage my listeners to do so. Uh, Haley, I want to thank you for taking time to uh, talk with me today. And I want to wish uh, you the best with what I'm sure will be a continued successful musical future. Great. Thank you so much. Pleasure talking to you today. You bet. My discovery composer of the week is American composer Mario Davidovsky. Davidovsky was born in Buenos Aires in 1934 and died in New York in 2019. He studied the violin as a child and began to compose at the age of 13. 
Subsequently, he studied composition, theory, and history in Buenos Aires, where his principal teacher was Gratzer. In 1958, he studied at the Berkshire Music Center with Aaron Copland, and while there, met Milton Babbitt, who encouraged him to move to New York to work at the Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Center. He taught at the University of Michigan in 1964, the Instituto Torcuato de Tiela of Buenos Aires, 1965, the Manhattan School from 1968 to 1969, Yale University from 1969 to 1970, and City College, City University of New York from 1968 to 1980. His association with Columbia University began in 1960 with his appointment as Associate Director of the Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Center and ended with his tenure as Professor of Music 1981 to 1993. In 1993, he joined the staff at Harvard University. He was the recipient of almost every major award in the United States of America, including the Kusevitsky Fellowship, 1958, two Rockefeller Fellowships, 1963 and 1964, two Guggenheim Fellowships, 1960 and 1971, and a Pulitzer Prize, 1971. Davidovsky was first acknowledged nationally and internationally for his electroacoustic works. His series of works entitled Synchronisms were among the first successful collaborations employing electroacoustic and instrumental resources. The ability to record sound was, in his opinion, the single most important technical breakthrough of the 20th century. It enabled sound to be frozen in time and used as an architectural element of musical form. Space, in Davidovsky's work, is an independent element of music used in much the same manner as Schoenberg and Webern had used timbre earlier in the century. In Synchronisms Number no. 10, for Guitar and Electric Sounds, 1992, the extended guitar solo contains an opening motive that is transformed through use of registral shifts, harmonics, strummed chords, arpeggios, sustained chords and hammerings, and percussive blows to the body of the instrument, each representing a certain mode of attack. Phrases are constructed through association of these attacks and lead to an implied counterpoint which becomes apparent with the entrance of the electronic sounds. The spatial location of these sounds identify and move individual lines through the complex contrapuntal texture. Davidovsky's instrumental compositions, which make up the majority of his works after the 1970s, concentrate on musical elaboration and development. In The Divertimento of 1984, one immediately identifies the gestures of the solo cello and the commentary on that material by the orchestra with the textures and techniques most often associated with electroacoustic works. From the opening raw low C of the cello, which suggests a sawtooth wave from an oscillator, to the resonating accompaniment of the winds and brass, the orchestration is not unlike the mixing of a multi-track electroacoustic composition. 
Rapid changes in register and mode of attack give way to the layering of broadband harmonies approximating the spectra of waveforms. In the opening of Concertante, 1990, the orchestra acts as a reverberation chamber for the opening string quartet passage. The rapid woodwind passages resemble the speed transposition typical of tape pieces, and effects such as beating, reverberation, and masking to create a sense of electronic filtering and the use of noise, differentiate and extend traditional timbres. The careful control of sound envelopes of whole groups of instruments highlight motivic associations. Most importantly, perhaps, as part of the composer's concept of space and time, the string quartet and the orchestra project their material towards each other, creating a further hybrid timbre-space dimension. The All Music Guide lists seven recordings of Davidovsky's compositions for voice with accompaniment one recording of his orchestral work, Flashbacks for Chamber Ensemble, one recording of Synchronisms Number no. 6 for Piano and Electronic Sounds, one recording of his Divertimento for Cello and Orchestra, one recording of his choral work, Now Let Thy Servant Depart in Peace, 15 recordings of his chamber works, and one recording of Synchronisms Number no. 3 for Cello and Electronic Sounds. In my show notes is a link to a YouTube video of a performance of Davidovsky's Synchronisms Number no. 3 for Cello and Electronic Sounds, performed by cellist Chris Gross. Well, that wraps episode number 100, a milestone for me for sure. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I'll be interviewing Nashville-based singer-songwriter Jess Jokoy. We have a great discussion about her newest recordings and her music career in Nashville. Other upcoming interviews include Chicago-based free jazz saxophonist and composer Ken Vandermark, Nashville-based pop country artist Erin Gibney, and Indianapolis-based singer-songwriter and author Brett Wiscons. So don't touch that dial. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.